0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.: Let's pray. Ask God to help us as we come before his very word. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that we have the freedom and the ability to be here together with your people and hear you speak Lord, we are so thrilled that you have preserved for us and saved for us your very word, that in it we hear your thoughts for us, uh, your message to us, uh, from the trustworthy authority of your apostles, Lord, and just to ponder Jesus and who he is and why he's come and what that means for our story, what it means for the world. Lord, we thank you for this. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would come even now. Please help me to teach this passage faithfully and clearly. And Lord, help each one of us to listen attentively. Lord, because if I teach this faithfully, it's, it's God that's speaking. And so God, come and speak to us. Let us hear you with humble hearts, open ears, open eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what does Christmas have to do with Christmas? Death. Uh, at first, you, know, you think about that, Christmas and death, and you're thinking, you're not supposed to talk about death at Christmas, right? Hallmarky Christmas, uh, that's lights and uh, celebrations and parties. Uh, death, you're not going to talk about death at Christmas, are you? Well, did you hear what this passage is all about today? It's all about Jesus' death. And what that means for our death and our living. And so we, we remember the tension here, don't we? Uh, tension one, we, we, we remember um, the account of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke. And you start, imagine you're reading that for the first time, you start with um, the excitement of an angel choir actually singing. And people hearing that. Wow, it's amazing. And then you think of uh, the encouragement of lowly shepherds invited to come and see. To come and be with Jesus right there. So encouraging. And you start this way, and then as you would keep reading, you would wonder and you would listen and you would discover that finally Jesus was born so that he could bleed. That he lived a, a life so that he could die because the point of christmas is to take you to good friday christmas is in a way is, a, is about death isn't it i think that helps process our our own christmas right there's so many things right now to celebrate so many things to enjoy so many things to be thankful for and there's a lot of things to mourn a lot of things to grieve the reality of death in a lot of aspects of our lives, is present. So here we are in this tension, both this celebration, both this grieving, both looking at Jesus and and the beauty of who he is, and then the the shock that he came to die, and die in such a way. And so we, we ask ourselves, should we talk about death at Christmas? Well, the author of this book, we're going through the book of Hebrews, the the author of this book wants you to ponder Jesus' death again and again and again in a new way because in Jesus' death, there's the greatest gift you could ever possibly receive. Jesus' death wins you the greatest gift you could ever possibly receive and to see that and to ponder that and to treasure that changes the entire perspective of your own life and your own death. So that's what we want to see in our passage this morning, is the glory, really, in another, from another point of view, the glory of Jesus' death for his people and the incredible gift he won for them, for us, in dying. For our sins. So, I got three points I want us to see this morning from this text. Verses 15 to 24, I'm calling that the necessary claim. This is what I mean by that. There was an inheritance to claim, to grab it, to own it, to win it. And Jesus did what was necessary to claim it. So, verses 15 to 24, the necessary claim. The second thing we want to see is in verses 25 to 26, it's the perfection of that claim how this is permanent and complete and perfect. So 15 to 24, the necessary claim, 25 to 26, the perfection of that claim. And then 27 to 28, we're going to see some of what that claim Jesus has secured, some of what that means for our dying and our living. We've got to see our own death and our own living in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay, so the necessary claim, the perfection of that claim, what that claim means, and honestly, brothers and sisters, that helps us celebrate Christmas, because this is why Jesus came. This is why he came. So let's begin. First of all, the necessary claim. We're going to start with verse 15. Therefore he, just follow along in your Bibles here, therefore he... Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In verse 15 here, the writer is both summing up the broader argument he's been making, and then he's transitioning to just one more point of detail he wants us to ponder about Jesus' death. So let's try to follow his argument. Again, he's, he's doing two things in this verse. He's summarizing his, his bigger picture argument, and then he's, he's honing in on one more piece to understand about Jesus' death. So what was the broader argument? Just big picture, let's, let's back up and remember. M- much of Hebrews is the author looking at Psalm 110 in light of who Jesus is. So, Psalm 110 was perhaps Jesus' favorite scripture about himself. And it says in Psalm 110 that the, the promised king would also be a new and better priest. There's, there's, a, there's a new league of, of priesthood, a new and better priest. And so the author here is pondering so many scriptural realities. As he sees Psalm 110 in light of Jesus and what he's done, he's seeing now, okay, there's a promise of a better priest. That means there's a better tabernacle. That means there's a better sacrifice. That means there's a better covenant. And so idea dominoes just keep falling for how we understand the Old Testament and how it works. And we just see over and again how Jesus fulfills every promise in reality everything is changing for the better so the author said this in hebrews seven twenty two, one of his summary statements this makes jesus the guarantor of a better covenant uh, what's that word guarantor mean It's it's a legal word. It's someone who has accomplished the terms of the covenant at his own cost, so it's signed, it's sealed, it's delivered. How do we know that the new covenant will come to pass and we get to enjoy it? Can you guarantee it in your own goodness, strength, morality? No way. Who, Who guarantees it? Jesus guaranteed it. Then again in chapter 9, 15, right here, In our passage, the writer says Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. So you see another angle on how Jesus accomplishes this new way for us to relate to God. A mediator brings two parties together. In this case, it's it's a unique setting, okay? We're not making compromises so much in this case. Because the two parties are the holy living God who created all things revealed in the Bible. And then the second party is sinful human beings who deserve his wrath. What kind of a mediator is needed to bring those two parties together? I mean, the examples of the old covenant show us what happens when sinful, rebellious human beings enter the holy presence of God. What happens? Death. Death. So how can we come together in fellowship with God? Well, Jesus mediates it. He brings us together through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So this big argument the author has been making, Jesus is the better priest who brings a better covenant with better promises, and this new covenant is mediated and guaranteed in Jesus. That's a broader argument. Now the author wants you to see another point in more detail. And so he begins by addressing some of why, why God is doing this, and I, and I love statements like these. Jesus did these things so that... You gotta gotta notice statements like these. So that, you see, the point, the goal. Why is he doing this? So let's look carefully at chapter 9, 15. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. So that, now just take this in, take this in slowly. So that, this is God's point, okay? This is the purpose. So that those who are called, Let's ponder that for a moment. What does it mean to be called? What does that mean? The Apostle Paul writes about his calling. He mentions it in Galatians 1.15. Galatians 1.15, the Apostle says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace... You hear what's going on there? Paul's thinking about his own life. Um, he had deep sorrow and regret about the nature of some of his sin and rebellion against God, right? It, it led to actually him persecuting, leading to the deaths of some of God's people. He persecuted Christians. He, he was so aware of his sin in the big picture, in the small picture of his need. And then he's, he's just so aware of God's grace. And Paul says, when he who had set me apart before I was born. Oh, friends, to, to realize that you're called, you're stepping out into a bigger picture here about who God is in his mind for his people. The reality is that God has set apart his people to himself and he made this choice Ephesians 1 says, before the world was made. It was was before you were born. And so you realize just how reliant on grace you are. Uh, How undeserved this love is. Because if it's before I was born, I mean, I couldn't do anything to to deserve that. And So here's here's Paul in his situation, remembering his sin and, and thinking of his calling. He'd set me apart, Paul said, before I was born. And Paul said, and he called me by his grace. This is what reformed theologians will call irresistible grace. And and many of you, if you especially if you converted as an adult, uh, you'll understand this. Because for years and years and years you didn't care about Jesus at all. Maybe you gave him lip service, maybe, maybe you couldn't stand him. You didn't care for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't, it wasn't by your doing, all of a sudden you saw your need. Your deep need, you realize you're a sinner before a holy God. You need to be right with God. And then you hear the news of Christ and who he is and what he's done, and it's sweet and it's precious to you. And it's as if the Holy Spirit of God is saying, Come on. Come on. It's time for you to come and belong to the Father as his child. It's time for you to come and have Christ. That's what it means to be called. God has a people in His mind that He will surely save, and when He calls them, that's the, that's the experiential effect of who Jesus is and what He's done, taking place in their minds and hearts. So back to nine fifteen, God's purpose in bringing about the new covenant so that those who are called so that those who are called may may what receive receive. There's a, there's a gift for you. There's something that God wants you to have. If you're called, if you've repented of your sin, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, there's something God wants you to have. That's why Jesus came and mediated this and guaranteed this so that those who are called may receive, may receive what? The promised eternal inheritance. Promised. What does that mean? This isn't coming out of nowhere. This was always God's plan. This was his promise for his people, and now it's fulfilled. Promised. Let's think of that next word, inheritance. What's an inheritance? It's someone else's treasure that you, in some way, receive as your own. It's someone else's treasure you receive as your own promised inheritance, now look what's under the wrapping paper of this gift. It's an eternal inheritance, an eternal inheritance. When we think of inheritance, we usually think of uh, physical assets, and there's good reason for that, okay? Good reason for that, you think of uh, money or assets or property, you might inherit, uh, someone you're related to or whatever passes away, but it's not eternal, okay? Okay? Number one, especially for my kids, it's not anything close to eternal, right? You could probably blow it in a weekend. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's only so much, it's limited. But not only that, you can't take it with you. Can't take it with you. I don't know what kind of inheritance you're going to get or not in this life, but, but look at what Jesus came for. He came that you, the called, might receive his eternal Inheritance. You think of the illustration of, hey, uh, next year is going to be hard for you, but after that, you're going to inherit $10 million. How many of you, a little bit, would be like, sweet. I could do good things with that. I could enjoy that. I could make it through next year. I could make it knowing that was coming. May God give us eyes to see the reality here. You have a promised eternal inheritance coming eternal. That means as, as deep as it can be, as wide as it can be, as good as it can be for as long as it can be. Face-to-face relationship with God, total forgiveness. Thriving new life in a new body on a new restored earth. You realize that's what heaven is, right? A new planet. It's not less real. It's more real in a new body with new relationships, and it lasts forever. Hebrews twelve twenty eight. it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken So what's the argument saying? He's, he's honing in now on one more beauty of Jesus' death, and he's saying that the reason Jesus came, the reason he did this is to get the called, their promised eternal inheritance. How did he do that? How did he get you that inheritance? That's what we start thinking about in verse 15 and forward. In verse 15, he says, a death has occurred that re- redeems them, from transgressions committed under the first covenant. You think of the law of that covenant. You think of the Ten Commandments. You think of God's regulations for how people are to know and love him and love one another. And you think of all the ways we've broken that backwards and forwards, right? And so we're slaves to sin. There's a power of sin. It's like we can't stop. And there's a penalty of sin. We deserve God's wrath. And Jesus redeems us. That's, that's a first-century word for setting slaves free, He redeems us, and what is it that redeemed us? A death has occurred. The death has occurred. It's Jesus' death that bought us and all God's people out of our sin. And so, now we get into what the the writer's thinking as we move forward. He's thinking of Jesus' death, and it leads him to this next point that's kind of hard to see in English, because it's, it's kind of a play on words in Greek. So, Maybe you noticed, all over verse 16 and 17, or sorry, all over 15, you see the word covenant, right? He brought the new covenant. Uh, Verse 18, you see it again, covenant. Then in verse 16 and 17, it's a little different. Look at verses 16 and 17. The writer says, where there's a will, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. So, we read this in the ESV and we get these two words. You got covenant, covenant, covenant. Then you got will, will. And then you've got covenant, covenant again. And so, your, covenant's a kind of tying relationships together. A will, that sounds like more like an inheritance you get at the end. And then covenant, that sounds like that relational commitment again. What's going on? Well, in, in Greek, it's all the same word. Covenant and will are the same word. But it's also a word that can have two meanings in Greek. So the Hebrew word for covenant, berit. These folks here, uh, the the recipients of this letter, they would have read their Bible, the Septuagint. What's that? It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So they're reading the Old Testament, not in Hebrew. They're reading it in Greek. What's the Greek word for covenant? Diatheke. You don't need to remember that. Diatheke is the word. That's the Greek word you'd use for the Hebrew word covenant when you're making a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Make sense? But in Greek culture, diatheke can also mean last will and testament. It can also mean last will and testament. You can't do that in English, can you? That's why the ESV changes the word to will because they're showing you this is, this is what the author means. How do we know this is what he means? Well, again, verse 16 and 17, his point starts to make sense. Where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it's not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. You get the idea. It's the inheritance. Um, my kids get their inheritance when I'm dead. That's, that's how it works. And so it was through a death God's people receive not only this covenant with him, but also the inheritance that comes with the covenant. There's an inheritance that comes with the covenant. And it's another thing Jesus did for you through his death. So let's see this connection here between the covenant relationship with God and the inheritance it brings Verses 18 to 21, the writer seems to just summarize all this kind of Old Testament mosaic law worship. 18 to 21, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So again, just unpack that line, that heading there. Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. That means the only way this relationship is going to work is if we have blood. Blood. And then he unpacks it nineteen. Every commandment of the law had been declared by most of all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. It's kind of mind-blowing to realize all the blood that was shed for Mosaic covenant worship. Just kill another one. Kill him. Kill another animal, right? Constantly sprinkling, spreading, dipping blood. Why blood? Why? God is holy. In in my rebellion against him, what do I deserve? Death. What does blood signify? Death. It signifies a substitutionary death. Because the whole point of this covenant is sinful people fellowshipping with a holy God. And if we're to go into the presence of a holy God on our own righteousness, death. So how is this going to work? How are we going to relate together? Blood. Because sin has to be paid for. And the wages of sin is death. And so this blood all over in the covenant signifies substitutionary death. Something had to die for sin, but even though I'm the sinner, it wasn't me. And I could still come in fellowship with God. Uh, the author makes the point in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Just park the car right there for a moment. Do you need to be forgiven? Do you have skeletons in your closet? Do you have sins you keep going back to? Are are you aware of the rebellion of your heart? Are you aware that you haven't even kept your own standard, much less God's? Do you need to be forgiven? I need to be forgiven. Without the shedding of blood, there isn't forgiveness. That's a sober, sober statement. It means God never sweeps a sin under the rug. He never just says, oh, don't worry about it. Never. Never. There's all, he's just. There's always a just penalty for sin. So this leads me, right, to this problem. As a sinner who deserves death and judgment from a holy God, how am I going to be in covenant with him and how how am I going to receive an eternal inheritance from him? we know the answer. It's in verse 23. The writer says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. We've already seen this argument. Um, The high priest in the Mosaic covenant, he's bringing blood into the Holy of Holies, Uh, but it was just a copy. It, It was just a shadow It teaches us about the real thing, but it's not about the real thing. Jesus did the real thing when he went into the very presence of God on the basis, not of the blood of a bull or of a goat, but on the basis of his own willing sacrifice of himself. And this accomplished the claim of the inheritance. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, Which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So he's not a Levitical priest, he doesn't work in the tabernacle, he didn't work in the temple. No, he's the actual priest who does his work in the very presence of God. The real thing. And his sacrifice actually atones, and so he now appears in the presence of God, and don't you love this phrase, on our behalf. On our behalf. Who's the our? How do you get into that word? Can you say Jesus appears in the presence of God? Can you say, on my behalf? It's easy for me to believe, you know, on your behalf or our. He appears in the presence of God on our behalf, kind of as this vague group of people. Do you ever have this uh, this wondering in your own heart? Maybe it's good for them, but is it really good for me? Friends, there's nothing... Overwhelmingly amazing about the people receiving this letter in the book of Hebrews. They're struggling, they're suffering, they're wavering. And the author of Hebrews still says, Our behalf. Which means we here at Fountain of Life can say, He appears in the presence of God on our behalf. Because the way you get into the word our is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Repent of your sins and turn to Christ. Trust him to make you right with God. And he's your priest and you can say, he appears in heaven on my behalf. On my behalf. He's there for our cause He's there because he's now made the necessary claim. He was going to win the, inter- the eternal inheritance for those who are called. And how did he do it? He died for our sins on the cross, and he intercedes for us in the presence of God, and now the inheritance is ours. What a gift! he has made claim on that inheritance so as to make it sure that you would receive it. Do you hear that? He came, he died, he rose so that you could receive the inheritance. The beauty of it is, if my inheritance is based on what he's done, what does that say about my confidence in receiving it? Because if, if me receiving my inher- eternal inheritance is based on what I've done, I'm insecure, okay, at best. You? If, if me receiving the eternal inheritance is based on me checking all the boxes and getting it just right, I'm a cynic. But if it's based on him and his life and his death in my place, his intercession, how do you feel about the possibilities? He's made the claim on the inheritance. Now we see the perfection of his claim. Look at verses 25 to 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year without blood, not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We need to make one thing clear. We're going to see it in these verses and the next ones. Human beings live once. It's probably obvious to you, but just to make sure, okay? Human beings live once. You're born and you die. There's no such thing as reincarnation. It is true you get some second chances in life. You don't get a second life. Yes, there are circular patterns in your life you your good, summer, fall, winter, spring, weekdays to work, weekend to rest and worship, but your life is linear. You're born, you live, and then you die. This is it. This is it. And uh, I'm officially middle-aged now. You know, when you're young, you keep thinking, oh, but I'm going to Right? Yeah, but I'm gonna it's all gonna and you get to forty five and you start to think, you know, I think I'm at the top of the hill. (laughs) And this is this is the top. And then I have some friends who are a little older than that. It's hard new sometimes to realize this life is it. This is it. We live once. Human beings live once. Jesus, the eternal son of God, he became truly human, which means he had one human life to live. One human life to live. Truly human, his life is linear. He He was born and he died. And he shares that with us. And this, surprisingly, is another way he's a better priest. Think about it. The high priest of the Mosaic covenant went into the most holy place every year, just just once a year and just for a little bit. And he went in uh, with fear and trembling, with blood not his own, pulling a goat for his own sin, the sins of his people, once a year, every year. And then uh, he dies because he's a sinner, and another one comes in, and what does he do? Once a year, every year, and on and on and on, every year for hundreds and hundreds of years and hundreds of different high priests just this perpetual offering of the sacrifice for sin. And the reason it was perpetual is because it never actually fixed the problem. We saw this last week. It doesn't change the heart. It doesn't actually earn your forgiveness. It didn't solve the problem. And so now we see how Jesus is the better priest. And and just like the priest, he goes in. And just like the priest, he brings A sacrifice. But the way it's different is he really goes in. He really goes into the holy presence of God. And the difference is his sacrifice actually works. It accomplishes what it was meant to do because what was the sacrifice? Himself. And we just think, we remember his holiness, his love for the Father. We think of his willingness where he said, I will go for them. I mean, Jesus actually said, I will go for you. I'll go for you. And his sacrifice was perfect. And so the author here is thinking, it's ridiculous to think that he would have the same repetition as those Levitical high priests. Number one, that's impossible because he's human. It's one life. What did he sacrifice? His life. How many of those did he have? One. So it's ridiculous to think that that would be repeated. No, no, no. That would not be human. It would also mean he never accomplished anything. He did it over and over again. Never accomplished anything. No. And so we look at verse 26, a glorious verse. As it is, Jesus has appeared. What's that next phrase? Three words. Once, for. All. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so what does this mean? As he had one life and he lived it perfectly, and he gave it up for his people. That means it had everything necessary to save and redeem us. Every obedience and love to be right with God, Jesus did it and gives it to us. Every justice for every sin as people need to be forgiven of, Jesus paid it. There's nothing forgotten or missing or overlooked. In fact, he offered himself at the end of the ages. What does that mean? This, this is the big, big channel change, the big, the big chapter change in the work of God's plan. All of the Mosaic Covenant and the promises of the Old Testament are looking and pointing and we're waiting, and finally Jesus comes and it's fulfilled. In fact, the age has changed. The age has changed. We're in the era of the reign of Christ and the message of the gospel. I mean, Western culture, we still date history by the coming of Jesus, And moreover, he has made the new way to God. And so we're to spread the gospel to all nations and tell them you can come to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And did you see? He has put away sin. He has put away sin. What other religion or philosophy has a leader so real and holy and loving and as perfect as this one? Who has Jesus never sinned merciful, truthful, bold, holy, righteous. He has truly put away sin. Is the only one who could, the only one who did. The penalty of sin is removed. The power of sin is decisively broken. We have seen, friends, the necessary claim on the inheritance that Jesus made through his death. He has it, and it's a perfect claim. It's once for all. It's accomplished. There's nothing to add. And this has huge ramifications for your death and your life. Jesus came to die to win your inheritance, and he has done so perfectly. And now we begin to see what it means for us. Look at verses 27 to 28. Just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Well, here it is. Our life is linear. Once to die, then judgment. Think of that word appointed. You and I have a reservation. You and I have an appointment. It doesn't really matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't really matter how successful you are. You can't skip it. You can try what you can. You can do what you want. You are going, dare I say it? You're going to die. It's appointed. We're sinners. We die. But it does not end there. You are going to die. And then judgment. Your body is doomed. Your soul is eternal. There is experience and life after the severing of our soul from body, after death. And we will each answer for how we lived and what we hoped in. And on that day, all excuses will fade in perfect truth. Every detail we will be known with perfect clarity, even to the point of what we wanted, what our motivations were, what we thought, what we said, what we did. And so the main issue will be for you: Is Jesus your priest? Is Jesus your priest? Was his death for you? Did he come into the presence of God on your behalf? Is he interceding for you? If so, rejoice, welcome to your inheritance. If not, despair and welcome to what you deserve. Such a sobering line, isn't it? Such a sobering line. So we have this two-part reality to our existence, life and death and judgment. And you see these words that begin verse 28. The author says, so Christ, so Christ. So just as we have this two-part reality, life and death and judgment, so Christ. There's a two-part aspect to his worth, his work, life and death, then judgment, except he's the one who rose from the dead and now doing the judging. Judging. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we remember again, in living and dying in our place, Jesus bore our sins. Praise God. Take them all. He took on our burden on himself, gives us his righteousness, takes our sin, and he will appear again not to deal with sin so here's what the author means he's not he's not coming again as the sacrifice for sin he's already said he doesn't need to do that why does he not need to do that he already did it and it's perfect it's done every sin for every single one of god's people is paid for i I get one amen for that one It's, it's awesome Okay? So that means when he comes back, he's not going to have to work to make sure his people are forgiven. Well, done. He won't be dealing with sin in that way. No, he's going to come and save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's going to save us. What does that mean? So you could think, I thought I was already saved. Well, if you trusted Christ, there's, there's a way in which that's true. Do you remember those words, inaugurated eschatology? Okay, inaugurated it's begun in reality but it's not matured it's not complete it's not here all the way eschatology eschaton study of the end ology study of inaugurated eschatology we have the things of the end that are coming already but not yet already but not yet i have it but not completely uh there's lots of illustrations of this right do you get to enjoy the presence of god right now because you're in christ absolutely. You have it. Do you get to enjoy the full-on presence of God right now? No. I want more. I want to see it face to face. Or how about this? Are you set free from your sin right now? You have the ability And the power of the spirit with the sword of God's word, the power of community and fellowship, you can fight your sin like never before and grow in holiness. It does not own you anymore if you belong to Jesus. Do you still have to fight your flesh? And if any of you are like, no, I don't, go ahead and talk to a close relative and ask them what they think about that. Yeah, you do. It's still a fight. It's already, but not yet. And so when he comes, he's going to save us completely. There won't be any more not yet. It'll be already, finally, right here. He'll finish the deal. Those who belong to him will finally receive the eternal inheritance, new bodies, new earth, new relationships, new fellowship with him forever. That's our future in Christ. That's what he won for us. So the ramifications. Doesn't this change how you view your death and your life? Doesn't it change how you view your death and your life? It does. I want to give you just three things uh, in response from the context of this letter. What should we do in response to this truth of what Jesus has claimed for us through his death? Number one, the main emphasis from the author to this audience is for them to hold fast to the gospel as their hope in the midst of marginalization, suffering, and persecution. Hold fast to the gospel in the midst of trouble and difficulty. Don't leave it. Because the author knows that in suffering, especially in persecution, your heart's going to look for hope somewhere else. Don't do it. Put the hope of your heart in Christ who he is and what he's done. And the way we inspire that is to keep looking at Jesus. That's why our whole sermon series is called Eyes on Christ, because what does the author of Hebrews keep doing? Look at Jesus, look at him, cling to him. So we think of this audience that is reading this letter, hearing it, presumably to postpone persecution and avoid marginalization, right? They're tempted to leave Jesus and just go back to the Mosaic Covenant. The temple's still working, let's just do that. We won't be ostracized anymore. We won't be persecuted anymore. It's so part of what the writer is saying here, even if you leave Jesus to make your life easier now, guess what's still gonna happen to you? You're still going to die. You're afraid of death and losing? You're still going to lose and die. It doesn't ultimately change anything. Do you want to say to Jesus at judgment day that you denied him so that you wouldn't lose your house? Do you want to say to Jesus on judgment day that you denied him so that people wouldn't be cruel to you? You The more you look at Jesus, you think he's worth everything he's worth it i'm gonna die anyway i want to see my eternal reward I'm, let's hold fast to jesus no matter the cost no matter if we don't fit in with our cultural moment let's hold fast to jesus there's no priest there's no king like him where else are you gonna go hold fast to jesus trust him if you're not a christian i just want to invite you jesus is saying come you know the only thing keeping you from coming to jesus is you Because he's saying, come. If you say, I'm too sinful, I messed it up too many times. He's saying, come. I lived righteously. Come. My death was enough. Come. Trust Jesus. And if your heart's being tempted towards other hopes, push those off. Hold fast to Jesus. That's the first thing. Second thing, second response. Serve Jesus. Serve him with your life. Back up in Hebrews 9, 14, the author said, uh, How much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is a picture of the new covenant. When you trust Jesus, you have this new relationship with God. Uh, You have this new forgiveness from God and you have a new desire in your heart to love him and his ways. In your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, at your work, in the way you handle societal issues, you want Jesus to be glorified in your character, in the truth that you speak. You want to serve him. You know, for the Christian, there's just a different angle on this life, isn't there? I mean, is this life important for the Christian? Yeah, it's important. Is it most important? No. If this life is most important or all there is, do what you want. That's it, then it's over. But if this life is just the introduction to the next life, the actual life, the real life, the good life, that's different. That's different. Didn't Jesus say something like this in John? You want, you want to save your life, you got to lose it. You got to lose your life to find it. You've got to let go of this life and this world being Everything doesn't mean you don't love this world in in the sense of you participate in it or you enjoy God's good gifts or you live fully in it. That's not what it means. But it means it doesn't own you. It doesn't doesn't control you. Jesus now does. And if you have to let go of this life in some way for him, you will because you know where the real treasure is at. So as we see what Jesus won for us, the reality of our own death and the promise of eternal inheritance, it motivates us to serve him in this life, serve him freely in this life. So hold fast to the gospel. That's the first response. Serve Jesus with your life. Number three, he's coming to save those who wait eagerly. I have a love-hate relationship with that word, wait. Actually, it's mostly hate. (laughs) Any of you like waiting? Some people are really holy in my life, and they're like, oh, it's, it's so valuable to wait. And I'm like, I don't get you. What does wait mean? It means you want something. And what else does it mean? You can't have it yet. So you wait. I want something. I can't have it yet. And that's part of the Christian life, isn't it? Many places in the New Testament, Christians are people who wait. Here we wait eagerly. What are we waiting for ultimately? Just get it real clear in your heart. You know, when I was young, it's like, I can't wait to, uh, to be married. And it's like, I can't wait to uh, pastor my own church. And then it's like, I can't wait for, I can't wait for, do you see how the things change in your heart? I can't wait. And then sometimes on a really sad day, you're like, I don't know what I can't wait for. I don't see anything coming around the corner. Get real clear with your heart, Christian. What is it that we can't wait for? When, when does it all finally work? When do all the problems finally go away? When is the controversy over? When's the fight over? When does it all get better? When does every dream come true? What are you waiting for? It's when Jesus comes back. Can't wait. Guess who Jesus is going to save? Those who can't wait to see him. Wait eagerly. But the call is... Check and see what you're really waiting for. Check and see what you're really waiting for. Death and Christmas seem like a strange pair, but actually they're not. Why? Jesus came to do what? Die. And even as we celebrate this year, we know we are going to someday die. As we look at what his death bought for us, new covenant with God, the promise of an eternal inheritance as we look at him it changes our view on how we're going to die and how we live now because Jesus has won this gift for us perfectly trust him serve him wait for him because Jesus did not do all this work to not finish the job he will come for us let's pray Jesus we thank you for this best gift gift of yourself the gift of what you have won through your death and resurrection. Lord, help us to treasure you, the person of who you are, what you did personally for those that you've called for your people. And Lord, let us glory in the reality that that eternal inheritance is ours, that you are in the presence of God on our behalf, that it's finished, it's done once for all, and you will return to save us. We thank you for these great promises. We pray that you would write them deeply on our hearts and on our minds so that we might live in light of them, have the joy and peace that comes from them, and honor you with our lives here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.